Welcome to The Watchdog with me, Loki, on Mint Press. As usual, we are going against the grain with real investigative journalism. And because of that, we need your support. So please like, subscribe and share this video, but also support us through the Patreon in whatever way you can. This week, we are honoured to be joined by the investigative journalist, John McAvoy. John, how are you? I'm very good, thanks, Karinios. It's a real pleasure to be here with you. Thanks for joining us. I'm a big fan of your work. To start off with, I just wanted to get an idea of the trajectory towards investigative journalism. How was it um, and how did you become the person you are today? Yeah, it's a good, it's a good question. I mean, I've, um, I kind of entered journalism in a bit of an unorthodox way. Uh, to be honest, I wasn't even that, that much intending to become a journalist. I'd just published something about British involvement in Colombia, um, like an academic paper. And I just sent it to, once it got published, I just sent it to a number of different outlets. And those outlets included The Guardian, um, The Independent, uh, and a number of uh, independent ones as well. And also sent it to people like Mark Curtis, who I thought, uh, you know, foremost British historian of British foreign policy in the second world. Um, and unsurprisingly, The Guardian uh, is, a, is a trend that I've noticed since uh, since publishing this paper. The Guardian didn't seem interested, just as it hasn't seen it, seemed very much interested in uh, a number of cases of British involvement in Latin America. Uh, they they haven't, you know, published anything on, on British involvement in Venezuela or the recent uh, all the all the recent evidence that are published of British involvement in the coup in Chile in 1973. But um, one of the papers that did respond to me was the Canary. Um, the the global editor of the Canary at the time got back to me, um, <clears throat> said, you know, this is interesting. Would you like to start writing? And I I just I just said yes. Yeah. So I got I got into it that way really. Um, and you know, I think I think like a lot of people at that time. I was I was politically interested, but not particularly politically active. You know, I was working two jobs out in Canada, um, and I wasn't I wasn't sufficiently, I don't think, aware of the kind of um, the kind of uh, editorial constraints that are put on the type of reporting that I wanted to do. Um, and it's it soon became apparent that 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 independent media was pretty much the only place that was gonna gonna allow uh, publications on anti-imperialism and on British foreign policy in Latin America and basically uh, reflecting what Britain's real role in the world was. Um, so, I mean, obviously since then, uh, I've, I've published in a, lot of, in a lot of different places, including, you know, Brazil, Wire or Declassified UK. Um, and I mean, it, the, the trend has just continued. Like if you want to report truthfully on Britain's real role in the world, uh, you're not, you're not going to, you're almost certainly not going to get any, uh, any attention from from the corporate media? I mean, the guard the Guardian is is a good example because it's what you'd expect uh, on the liberal end of the corporate medium. So there's very little chance that they're going to report, um, yeah, report honestly about what's going on in Latin America. I think a key part of war against left media in this country has been the campaign against the Canary. And there's a particular aspect of that campaign that you picked out in your article, looking at the influence of an organization which goes by the name of Stop Funding Fake News and how it had had some influence 
on the downsizing which had to take place in the Canary. Can you tell us a bit about Stop Funding Fake News? Yeah, so I mean, sh- before before the 2019 uh, general election uh, in the UK, as we all know, uh, Labour lost. And there was a, a campaign that was mounted against media organisations uh, in the UK, and this campaign was called Stop Funding Fake News. Uh, what, I pro- what I proposed to do was to try to demonetize uh, independent news websites by pressuring certain uh, or uh, certain companies to remove their advertisement. Um, however, I did a statistical analysis of who this campaign was actually targeting. And to be sure, it was targeting to a certain degree certain right-wing news organizations. Uh, but the, the vast majority of its attempts to, uh, to demonetize uh, the website was the Canary. Uh, it was it was roughly sixty percent, I believe, uh, more targeted than any of these other websites, and especially more than the right wing web- websites. So what what it seemed to me was basically a a, sen- a thinly veiled censorship campaign uh, against left wing media in the UK, and particularly the Canary. So it's quite a cynical operation, and um, and it gets more more cynical still when you consider who was actually behind it. And um, so <clears throat> stop funding fake news. Uh, it became apparent was a campaign orchestrated by uh, the Centre for Countering Digital Hate. Now, the Centre for Countering Digital Hate lists as its only patron uh, as Rachel Riley uh, of, of, of Countdown fame, uh, who masquerades as you know a, uh, as an anti-racist campaigner. But um, I, I feel like that it's a, a very cynical uh, way of acting for someone who. Has you know who said on a, on Mastermind I don't look like your typical kind of Jew, uh, and has made all sorts of uh, abhorrent uh, remarks in the past as well. So Rachel Riley is listed as the only um, the only patron of CCDH. However, CCDH's first director was Morgan McSweeney. Morgan McSweeney it, uh, was up until recently because he's clearly been doing a pretty shockingly terrible job. He was a, a Keir Starmer's campaign director. So the Centre for Countering Digital Hate, directed by McSweeney, was linked to this uh, Stop Funding Fake News campaign at the time that it was uh, targeting the Canary. Um, So what we've got is we've got this kind of cynical, supposedly counter-disinformation campaign that's trying to shut down and censor uh, independent left-wing media in the UK uh, and and with with direct lines back to to the right of the Labour Party. Um, I mean, these links get even strong when you consider that the Labour, the Labour campaign group called Labour Together, uh, which is, uh, uh, it's, it's supposedly a kind of a, a liberal side of the, of the Labour Party campaign to make Labour more uh, accommodating to the middle class effect. Um, this campaign group, <clears throat> Labour Together, is funded by the likes of uh, the pro-Israel lobbyist Trevor Chin. Uh, and once again, who did Trevor Chin fund uh, during the leadership campaign? Keir Starmer. So when Keir Starmer was, uh, was, was refusing to publish the full details of his campaign donors during the leadership election, uh, and this was like, you know, this was the subject of, uh, of a lot of media, a lot of media attention. And eventually, um, you know, I found that, that once, once the t- statutory limit of, of publishing your campaign donors had, uh, had reached its limit, Keir Starmer eventually, after he'd won the election, revealed that he'd received £50,000 from the pro-Israel lobbyist Trevor Chin. 
um, among its other camp, uh, among its other directors, Elisa Nandy, uh, of course, who is now the the Shadow Foreign Secretary. So you've got <clears throat> you've got a wide array of uh, prominent Labour figures, and I feel like that story should have should have been should have been uh, you know more widely reported, really, because it. <clears throat> I mean, how often is it that you get a party-affiliated organisation that's actively trying to shut down a press uh, organisation? So it's, it's, it was quite shocking. More recently as well, I'm, I'm not sure if you saw this, but I mean, there was a recent forum over uh, Sally Rooney uh, um, engaging with BDS um, and refusing to publish uh, a Hebrew version of her book with an Israeli publishing company that was linked to the Israeli Defence Forces. So, <clears throat> um, so there was a lot of media attention, you know, why Sally Rooney is supposedly an antisemite. And, you know, the, the typical nonsense that we've seen uh, over the past three or four years, especially. Um, now, in the Times, one of the Centre of Countering Digital Hate senior investigators published a piece accusing uh, Sally Rooney of antisemitism uh, because, because of her very principled decision not to publish the book with a publishing company linked to the RDF. Uh, so, so what I feel like you've seen some thread starts to unravel with regards to the CCDH now. Is it against countering digital hate, uh, or is it more against censoring ideas that certain uh, certain vested interests uh, would not like to be published? And I think that's even more important when you consider that the CCDH lists on its website that it doesn't it doesn't publish uh, who is funding it, where where any of its money is coming from, apart from Rachel Riley, which is just fairly absurd to be honest. Um, but if you look at its company's house, um, look at its um, <clears throat> its uh, basically its finances by a company's house, it's it's doing fairly well financially, and it's often it's often got job posts. And some of the some of the jobs listed uh, or advertised by CCDH uh, have a salary of forty five thousand uh, pounds. So this isn't this isn't a minor operation, and um, this is being funded from somewhere. I imagine it's not been solely funded. Well, it's clear it's not been solely funded by Rachel Riley. So it'd be very interesting to see if they could publish who's actually funding them so that we can see if they're genuinely a campaign against digital hate as they, they, they propose to be or something far more sinister. I think the latter is more likely given that they won't publish it. Absolutely. And also a key part of this is that the CCDH, it shares its address with Labour Together which you mentioned, you know, Trevor Chin is not only a funder of, he's also a director of Labour Together. And Trevor Chin is a senior official within the former, the formal Zionist movement. He's a lobbyist from BICOM, the Israel Lobby Group. Um, and also you've seen Martin Taylor fund the Labour Together group. And this is someone who was intimately involved in the PFI policies which have eviscerated the NHS across the country and society at large. If you could also tell me about Imran Ahmed, who is also linked to this organisation, what's his role and what's his connection to the Labour Party? Yeah, I think it's important to go back very briefly on, um, on the role of Trevor Chin really in, in British politics. Uh, so as as you said, he funds. He's one of the major funders of Labour Together. He's funded uh, Keir Starmer's leadership campaign with fifty thousand pounds. He's funded Lisa Nandy. Um, so you've got this <clears throat> this kind of pro 
Lobby, who is simultaneously funding the 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 Labour Party chair of the Palestine Solidarity Campaign. Like something's not quite right there. Um, and Lisa and Andy have been widely reported to have basically ground the Palestine Solidarity or the Labour Friends of Palestine organisation to the ground. Uh, she's it's, its website has barely been active uh, during the time that she she was running it. Uh, so it's I mean it's, it's it's very important to question what Lisa how, the degree to which Lisa and Andy's solidarity with with Palestine actually stands. Now back to Trevor Chin because I think it's important to to recall what Boycom's role. Uh, is and was in British society. Now, it's often to bring leading British journalists over to Israel and be basically given a tailored tour and to pamper British journalists so that their output on Israel uh, and and Israel and Israeli government policies is uh, perhaps more more charitable than it deserves. Um, and of course, in the UK, we know that Boycom, if if ever there's let's say BBC reporting on Israel. That appears to be uh, critical of its policies, such as murdering children. Uh, Boycom has been known to contact leading media organisations and make sure that um, that this reporting is edited in a way that that is more charitable once again to Israel. So Trevor Chin's involvement or Trevor Chin's, you know, indirect uh, association with, the, with these organisations is very important because it's quite clear that these are also information operations. Um, that are targeting organizations such as the Canary that are critical of Israel's policies. And um, so you can see direct kind of a correlation between the funding, the individuals involved, uh, and who's getting targeted. And it's usually those, as you well know, who stand in solidarity with Palestine um, against an apartheid state. Um, <clears throat> but just to go back to Imran Ahmed, who you, who you asked about, he has, uh, he has a long history of uh, organising also with members of the Labour right. Uh, he was for a long time associated with Angela Eagle, uh, who, as we know, ran a failed leadership uh, cont- contest against Jeremy Corbyn as one of the numerous coups that he, that he suffered. And um, and a number of other figures on the Labour right, I believe, like Liz Kendall, who, who <laughs> I think he ran communications for her when she got like 6% of the vote in the leadership contest. So, I mean, he's... He's perhaps not the most effective actor, but he's certainly involved in a lot of uh, a lot of campaigns that uh, that are politically associated with the right wing of the Labour Party. And also importantly, um, Imran <coughs> Ahmed is on the steering committee for the government's commission for countering extremism. So it's in this way that we see these actors who work in sort of curating what are the parameters of political expression and interrogation, really, and investigation within our society. We have so much to talk about, um, along with the war against the left in this country, there's also a hybrid war against Venezuela. If you could just break down some of the elements of that hybrid war for us. Yeah, for sure. Um, I mean, Venezuela has been the a key target of the hybrid war. I mean, since especially since Hugo Chavez was elected in in 1998, and um, what Hugo Chavez tried to do in Venezuela was to kind of structurally change the social and economic character of the country in a way that 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 was preferable <clears throat> not to the to the Venezuelan olig- oligarchy that has long existed. 
uh, but to use its massive, uh, massive wealth um, for the for the benefit of the wider population, <clears throat> and especially for the benefit of, a, of an incredibly racialized population, um, such as uh, you know, there's a, a large population of uh, Afro-Venezuelans as well as indigenous population, and historically been totally excluded from the political process. So you have a shift in economic but also political representation in Venezuela during the, the Bolivarian revolution of uh, Chavez. Now, since Chavez died in 2013 and Maduro took power, um, this hybrid war has been intensified in a number of different ways. Uh, it's important to remember that under the Obama administration, Venezuela was designated as um, a national security threat on what basis, it's not quite clear, but was designated as a national security threat to the US, which paved the way for the brutal sanctions regime that uh, Venezuela is suffering at the moment. And um, according to the UN Special Rapporteur on uh, the coercive, so the, the, the human rights impact of uh, unilateral coercive sanctions, uh, Venezuela's uh, national income is at 1% of what it was prior to sanctions. Now that you know, I mean, in sitting in Britain, that's almost an incomprehensible uh, asphyxiation of an economy. I don't think we can we can quite grasp the the extent to which Venezuela's economy has been crushed uh, by by this uh, sanctions regime, and um, that supposedly allows humanitarian elements to still come into, but but companies, uh, organisations, aid of secondary sanctions that that cer- certain humanitarian aid. Is being restricted anyway, and as we've seen recently in the case of Alex Saab, um, a Colombian national but now Venezuelan diplomat who was uh, basically in charge of negotiating to bring food into Venezuela, because of course one of the chief political objectives of the U.S. and of Britain is to starve the Venezuelan population into submission, so that it changes its own government rather than the kind of the U.S. getting its hands dirty in. A kind of um, in any form of military, direct military intervention. Um, so Alex Saab has now been uh, detaining Cape Verde for a while. He's now been extradited to the US, where he'll probably suffer some, some horrendous treatment and, and put into a, a supermax, uh, similarly to, to what, what Julian Assange might await if he's also extradited. So, yeah, so what's Britain's role in all of this? Um, Britain supporting the, the coup efforts. Uh, the coup efforts that that <clears throat> really uh, intensified in January 2019, when Hong Guaido pronounced himself Venezuelan president, even though he'd never ran for, for presidential office in his life, even though one in five Venezuelans knew who he actually was. Uh, so Britain was one of the first countries to recognise Hong Guaido. Um, I mean, according to John Bolton, it did so under under US pressure. Um, and Britain shortly after uh, froze roughly two billion dollars worth of Venezuelan gold in the Bank of England, and it's the, the case of the Venezuelan gold in the Bank of England is quite is quite interesting and and, and particularly disgusting. I mean, if you take into account, for example, that in in 2018 Venezuela's total cost uh, or the total value of medical and food imports to Venezuela was 2.4 billion. Then Britain has basically removed, you know, that the equivalent amount of a, of a whole year's worth of medical and food imports, which, within a wider context of, of, of suffocating sanctions, is to, is tantamount to um, to institutionalised murder. So, 
Um, so Britain has has frozen, uh, and this is going through the courts at the moment. What's quite interesting is that Juan Guaido's legal fees in the UK uh, have been paid to a powerhouse US legal firm uh, with historic uh, with historic connections to wide parts of the Latin American right, uh, with money appro- expropriated from the Venezuelan state in the US. So basically, money that has been stolen by the US government has been given to Juan Guaido. He was then giving it to a legal firm to fight its, his legal battle in the UK in order to steal even more money from the Venezuelan state. So you've got this kind of compound theft that's going on that I think is actually quite rare in in uh, yeah in the history of British foreign policy. I mean, it's 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 very it's not direct plunder. It's it's this like these layers of institutions um, and indi- indirect theft of Venezuela's national resources. Um, it's also quite interesting that. Juan Guaido, the senior part, partner at the legal firm, uh, Arnold and Porter, that's representing Juan Guaido in the UK, previously represented the brother of uh, Honduran president, the, the drug trafficking brother of Honduran president, Juan uh, Orlando uh, Hernandez, um, and was basically lobbying uh, uh, representatives in the US House of Congress not to prosecute this uh this drug kingpin from Honduras, which is which is quite absurd, and now and now he's representing Juan Guaido. Uh, his name Eli Whitney Devervoice. His father used to be a CIA asset. So you can see the kind of the kind of links between Juan Guaido and his legal representation in the UK, uh, and what's actually going on in this case. Um, but aside from that, uh, the British government, as I revealed last year, and I think it was in March in March um, twenty twenty. I revealed that the British government or the British Foreign Office had a secret Venezuela reconstruction unit that was headed by the former British ambassador to Venezuela, John Saville. Um, <clears throat> now, the, this 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 unit that you know was preparing for a hypothetical coup in Venezuela and preparing for Britain to restructure its economy in the you know in the aftermath of this hypothetical coup uh, had never been you know uh, referenced publicly before. The it was totally secret. No uh, governmental um, documents like uh, referred to it whatsoever, and the Venezuelan government was um, was you know shocked and appalled at this. Uh, they, I mean, they claimed that they they hadn't been informed about the existence of the Venezuela Reconstruction Unit whatsoever, and they called the the British Charge d'Affaires and Hill to come and like, answer for the British government. Um, and you know this quite obvious evidence of British involvement. In the coup in Venezuela, was totally ignored throughout the entire media, even though it provoked a diplomatic scandal, even though it was referenced at the United Nations, even though the Venezuelan government brought a, a, a complaint against the British government at the United Nations, uh, even though Richard Bergen asked a question about the Venezuela Reconstruction Unit in Parliament, it's been almost uh, comprehensively ignored throughout the media, which I thought was quite quite amazing, really. And it's quite rare that you get, you know, um, a diplomatic crisis uh, to that degree that's so comprehensively ignored by the media. Well, I mean, the interesting thing is what you reveal in your article is emails in which the surprise that the media is embracing Guaido with such relish, it kind of makes it quite clear how slanted the situation is. Could you tell us a bit about that kind of um, support that he was receiving in Britain. I think I think that's quite well reflected by the fact that the UN Special Rapporteurs 
uh, report on Venezuela was was totally ignored. Um, totally ignored. No, almost nobody reported on, on the entirety of the press. Um, <clears throat> however, yeah, I mean, in these in these conversations, you've got Juan Guaido's UK representative Vanessa Neumann, uh, basically discussing with with her team that uh, you know the visits getting gangbusters. They say you know it's getting incredible press coverage. I think I think they I think in the documents you can see that they've organised an exclusive with the Financial Times and a number of other media organisations at this time. The Guardians, Tom Phillips, uh, and a number of the other Guardian uh, of other journalists at the Guardian were kind of representing Guaido as this freedom fighter, um, who you know who was gonna gonna finally bring uh, democracy to this uh, to, to Venezuela that's under this crust, supposedly crushing dictatorship. So yeah, I mean the the as as is usually the case, um, there's a direct correlation between the media's concern for humanitarian issues in a country. And uh, and the UK and the US's intention to bomb it. So the media starts to become concerned about uh, humanitarianism. Uh, if you're in that country, you might start to get concerned that you're going to get invaded or there's going to be some form of coup process against you. And you can actually see this um, if you're doing you know, a Google search term. So I googled humanitarian and Venezuela. There's a massive spike in January 2019 when those two words appear all over the media. Humanitarian concerns are suddenly top of the agenda in Venezuela. Didn't exist, barely existed, let's say, in the, in the early 1990s under the neoliberal period with the Caracadso and, and, and whatever else when, you know, Venezuelans were being murdered for protesting and whatnot. These were not concerns uh, during the late 1980s and early 1990s, let's say, with the Caracadso or, the, you know, the neoliberal period where uh, where poverty was was incredibly high and government repression was also incredibly high in Venezuela. Uh, but since the UK and the US didn't want to orchestrate a coup there, um, concerns, widespread concerns in the media about humanitarian issues uh, didn't exist. So you can see, you know, <clears throat> and I mean, it's the, the inverse is also the same. Let's say in Colombia uh, or in Chile recently, there were massive protests, major re- repression, um, but there were no calls within the media for uh let's say the the fall of Pinera or the fall of Ivan Duque because this doesn't complement US and UK the US and UK foreign policy agenda i also understand that following this brilliant story you were personally tweeted by Juan Guaido's personal representative in the UK what did she say yeah so <laughs> the backstory of this is is a bit convoluted but it I believe it was a Friday evening um, and the, Venez- the Venezuelan opposition, I believe that day, if not the day before, had just won the first round of, uh, of its case in the UK courts regarding the Venezuelan gold. So they just, just won the first case of the high court. And it was a Friday evening and a tweet comes from Vanessa Neumann, Juan Guaido's UK representative. She tweets out, Muerte a Maduro, death to Maduro with a picture of Maduro. I screen grabbed this and then I tweeted out that, you know, a Venezuelan diplomat, well, a supposed Venezuelan diplomat representing uh, the Venezuelan opposition is tweeting out, you know, death threats against the foreign head of state. Uh, is this any way for a diplomat to act, especially a diplomat that, you know, is enjoying not full, not full recognition from the British state, but had certain uh, privileged relationships with the British state, such as private meetings. To, uh, to discuss British foreign policy, for example, with uh, Foreign Minister, or what, our Foreign Minister, Alan Duncan. 
Um, so shortly afterwards, Vanessa, Vanessa Neumann claims that her Twitter account has been hacked uh, and that it wasn't her that actually tweeted it. So bear in mind, you know, it's Friday, Friday weekend evening and the Venezuelan opposition has just secured a, an important court battle in the UK. Now, I don't want to speculate, but it seems to me that the most likely eventuality is that she wasn't hacked uh, and that she tweeted this herself and then made up that she was hacked in order to, you know, provide cover. Uh, however, so, so I screen grab this, I share it, you know, people are sharing it, they're like, you know, this, this Venezuelan diplomat shouldn't be doing this, whatever. Um, and the next morning I wake up to these absurd tweets uh, from an account called Asymmetrica. Asymmetrica is interesting, she's the director of Asymmetrica, but according to, um, according to the company's registrar, in the US, Asymmetrica is also owned or was also owned by two CIA um, officials, one of whom was behind creating the drone predator uh, campaigns um, across and during thousands as part of the, world, the war on terror. Company that's owned by, well, it's a, supposedly a risk management uh, company owned by Vanessa Neumann, connected to the CIA that starts tweeting the next day saying that myself and a number of other journalists are um, are now subject to a transnational FBI investigation, totally um, absurd threat, linked to another tweet that says, with a price on your head. Um, so these are really, I mean, this, that seemed to, it came across to me and it came across to the others involved as a very thinly veiled death threat, um, which is absolutely shocking behaviour from a supposed diplomat especially a diplomat that's enjoying this privileged access to the British government. Um, so I tweet, sorry, I, so I emailed the Foreign Office and I said, do you, do you maintain recognition of this woman who is threatening British journalists in Britain? Um, and the, the Foreign Office basically washed, washed their hands of the whole situation and said, this is from a private account, even though it's clearly Vanessa Neumann tweeting from behind it. And um, said, this is a private account, so it has nothing to do with us. So I think, I think... I think um, realistically, the Foreign Office was incredibly embarrassed by the actions of this of this diplomat, um, and I mean, she 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 eventually resigned uh, from her role anyway because she saw, you know, she saw she saw the direction of travel of the Venezuelan opposition. They were much further from power than when she uh, when she was appointed, and yeah, so she's she's somewhat out of the picture. But um, but yeah, I mean, it was quite it was quite a disgusting event really to to receive threats like that from. From someone who who enjoyed privileged access to the British state and the British state decided to do nothing about it. Wow, what a story! I mean, also, John, your work seems to have put you in the position where your freedom of information requests have all been rejected since you exposed this uh, <clears throat> reconstruction unit for Venezuela within the UK Foreign Office. You've also done a subject access request at the cabinet office and found that your name over a period of 18 months was referenced 3,863 times in cabinet office internal emails. Could you tell us a bit about that, please? Yeah, sure. I'll start off with the difficulty with, with, with freedom of information requests. Um, so... In the in the year or so since revealing the existence of the Venezuela Reconstruction Unit, I've sent a number of freedom of information requests trying to demonstrate that the British government lied 
when it said that the Venezuelan government were told about the existence of this unit. Um, so one of those freedom of information requests is now over, it's been delayed by over a year. And the statutory requirement for response is 20 days. So at the moment, there's something like 350 days delayed. Um, it's totally absurd. I've also requested information about internal discussions within the Foreign Office in response or that mention Vanessa Neumann's threats against British journalists. That's been delayed uh, for, for, for a large period of time. And the, I mean, uh, there must be about 20 or 30 different freedom of information requests that have all been, all been rejected. For example, about Transparency International's uh, uh, operations uh, support uh, that are funded by the British state in, in Venezuela. Uh, the Foreign Office would not be transparent about what it's doing with Transparency International in Venezuela, which is another, just makes a mockery of both Transparency International itself um, and, and the British Foreign Office's uh, apparent, you know, uh, dedication to transparency. And um, so, yeah, so I was having a number of, a number of issues gaining information uh, via the Freedom of Information Act. Uh, recently, Open Democracy uh, revealed that there's a secret, well, there was a secret clearinghouse within the cabinet office where basically ministers or civil servants can monitor who's sending freedom of information requests, uh, whether they're a journalist and therefore whether they plan to publish that information, especially information that's sensitive or damning to the British state or embarrassing more life. And um, so I started to suspect that I might be on, uh, I might be on this clearing list. You have to give your name. Um, However, it's supposed to be a blind process. They're, they're not supposed to respond based on who you are. They're, they're basically supposed to treat everybody equally. However, it's become clear that they've got a list of journalists that they've effectively blacklisted from releasing information to. So I submitted a, a subject access request to the, to the Cabinet Office. Uh, what this means is that you, you, you have, you have a, a legal right to see whatever information a government body or a public body has on you. So last week, uh, I asked them to specify exactly how many times my name had been mentioned uh, within internal communication at the cabinet office. And uh, I actually forget the number, but you, you said it at the start, it was something like 3,800 times. Uh, they've referenced my name over a fairly short period of time, which is, I mean, it's slightly creepy and it's, and it's, and it's just quite absurd as well. Um, I mean, I haven't recently, I published roughly one article a month. Um, it's totally disproportionate to, to my output. Um, and, and I mean, as an addition to that, I know they monitor tweets as well. I asked them, uh, were any of my tweets included in this? And they said, uh, whatever tweets are included, they're included in that number. So they wouldn't, they wouldn't specify the degree to which they're monitoring my Twitter feed as well. So you've know, you've got this really creepy situation where the government is monitoring journalists. Uh, is collecting data on journalists. What that actually is, it's hard to tell because they've got so much of it. They can't go through it to give it to you. Um, yeah, so, yeah, I mean, it's it's the signal of a, of, a, of a receding democracy, really, when the state is collecting that much data on journalists and is refusing to, you know, collect, it was refusing to, to provide uh, uh, information to journalists that is their, their, their legal right. Wow. Again, there's so much that we could have to talk about. But when thinking about Britain's operations around the world, the Information Research Department was really key to all of that. Could you just give us a definition of what the Information Research Department is? Yeah, so the Information Research Department 
the IRD was a fairly massive department within the Foreign Office that functioned secretly throughout the Cold War. Uh, it was active between 1948 and 1977, and it was like in, it was involved in in a lot of the British government's uh, more sensitive areas of foreign policy uh, in the name of anti-communism, but also uh, uh, to target any threats to British interests as the years went on. And so, how would I mean? How would the IRD function? Basically, it collected uh, strategically useful information and distributed it to influential figures within societies abroad, but also within Britain. So it was also launching propaganda operations in Britain. And so these figures in in these these you know influential figures were often the military, people in the church, uh, the press, and um, student bodies. Um, and, and definitely the armed forces. So the IRD, the IRD was operating all over Latin America during the Cold War. And it was, I mean, it was operating all over the world. My particular area of area of knowledge is uh, of research is, is Latin America. So I mean, it was it was involved, for example, uh, in the, the kind of efforts to delegitimize Salvador Allende in Chile during the 1960s. Now, as as many people know, in 1973, Salvador Allende was the subject of a, of a brutal military coup at the hands of uh, Augusto Pinochet. Um, and during the 1960s, the IRD was basically providing useful information to journalists and to trade unions and to a number of different influential organisations uh, within Chile to prevent Allende from coming to power. And it's quite clear why they wanted to do this. I mean, Allende oversaw a fairly systematic change of the Chilean economy. He nationalised, for example, uh, the domestic and uh, foreign-owned uh, copper industry, and copper was its largest export. Britain bought a lot of copper from Chile. Um, but, I mean, he also, he also democratised the workplace. Uh, he nationalised uh, 90% of the country's banking system. Uh, he broke up the massive farming estate. So Allende's economic reforms directly affected, uh, in a number of ways, British direct uh, capital interests. However, simultaneously, the, the, the symbolic threat of Allende of you know uh, of a avowed Marxist who came to power via the democratic process was a symbolic threat to Britain as well. Um, if this uh, if this process could be re- replicated across the region, then they'd be in serious trouble, serious you know serious uh, material trouble especially. So during the 1960s, the Foreign Office's principal strategic and commercial objective in Chile was to prevent Allende from coming to power. Uh, once AMD won the won the election in 1970, the 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 IRD collaborated with uh, CIA outfits as well as a number of other U.S. government bodies to continue to delegitimise Allende. Um, <clears throat> and then, as we know, the Heath government recognised the Pinochet regime shortly within days of it coming to power in 1973. There are a number of threads that continue uh, with British involvement in Chile. So during you know, during the, the new Labour government in the late 1990s and, and 2000, you know, the Labour government uh, was actually in power when they refused an extradition uh, request from Spain uh, so that Pinochet could see, uh, could, 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 uh, could be prosecuted for war crimes in Chile. Um, I mean, at this time as well, I mean, the, the UK Home Office was paying uh, Pinochet's legal costs. Now, what you've got today is... So formerly, you know, you had the British, the, sorry, the British government was protecting Pinochet from 
facing justice for war crimes and was paying his legal costs. Now, today, the British government is trying to extradite Julian Assange for revealing war crimes and is paying the legal costs of the prosecution. So you can see how the British judicial system could be gained, you know, in line with British foreign policy. Um, I mean, uh, on the 48th anniversary, actually, of uh, the coup in Chile, the Chilean president, the current sorry, the current Chilean president Sebastian Piñera was actually in London meeting Boris Johnson. You know, Piñera's presided over some of the worst uh, repression of protests in Latin America over recent years. Human rights, of course, were not on the agenda because, in part, Britain is, uh, is supplying the Chilean police with, uh, you know, anti-protest material, uh, and Chile remains, you know, an important. Uh, regional ally of, of Britain. So, of course, human rights. Uh, yeah, human rights were not on the agenda. Thank you so much for joining us today, John. There's a lot more that we could talk about. Um, I really think it's vital that people support your work and also support the Canaries' essential work also. Until next time, this has been Low Key on the Watchdog with investigative journalist John McAfee. Thank you.